0: Thanks, Max. Well, if you can keep your Bible as open or your devices open at that passage, we're going to see how that passage interacts with our lives and what it may mean for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning uh, for the better of uh, your glory and for the world and our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, love is of interest to all of us. I'm sure in the past I have regaled you with stories like there she was sitting up the back of the congregation, Shireen, the woman who would one day become my wife. And I'm pretty sure I've quoted lyrics by Cher and Howard Jones and Foreigner and perhaps even poems by John Donne. We're interested in love. But it's not just romantic love which intrigues us. There's love of all sorts, love within the family, the love of a parent, the love of a friend, the love for other things. And while we've often spoken of love, I don't know whether we've ever spoken much about true love. And if I was to mention true love, I could quote the princess bride, you know, the clergyman, love, true love, if you know the movie. Or I could quote songs entitled True Love by Coldplay or or, or Pink. But perhaps a better thing would be to ask the question is why do we even need to say true love? Why not just love? Well, perhaps it's because not all love is true. Some apparent love can be fake, false, not the real McCoy. Someone may say they love someone, but their actions don't back it up, or their love is lukewarm, half-hearted, or even a lie. You see, as much as we are long for love, we also long for things that are true, not just as it relates to love, but true and relate to anything. We, we rely on truth a lot, and it's a shame when people cling to things which aren't true. I recently watched some Four Corners episodes uh, which looked at the close relationship between uh, Donald Trump and Fox News. And in one of the episodes, it took us to Ohio where there was a busload of Donald Trump supporters going on their way to a Donald Trump rally uh, this year. And um, most of the people on the bus seemed like very nice people. And many of them felt that Trump really had won the last election. They felt that he'd been robbed. And one guy said quite adamantly, Trump is the president. Not, gee, I wish Trump was the president, but he said adamantly, Trump is the president. Now, uh, regardless of where our sympathies lie when it, with American politics, and I really try and keep my own political views out of things, Trump probably wasn't dudded at the last election. And uh, he definitely isn't currently the president of the united states and it seems sad to me that the guy who said you know trump is the president seemed to be relying on an untruth or, or hoping for something just which just wasn't the case you see we love truth we want truth and we also want love and we certainly appreciate it when truth and love go together now here's the question do you appreciate love I assume the answer is yes. And do you appreciate things that are true? I assume the answer is yes. Well, today's passage, which Max just read for us, is all about truth and love. And truth and love of the most significant sorts. Truth and love as they relate to God and what God would have us do. Now, it's the fourth week this morning, in our, or this, evening, this afternoon, if you're watching this this afternoon. It's the fourth week of our five-week series in the book of 1 John. Uh, an outline, which many of you would have uh, downloaded or got hold of, uh, is set out there. It's a talk in three parts. Firstly, we're going to ask the question, point one, why talk about truth and love? Like, Why am I even raising this this morning? Secondly, point two, truth believe in Christ, focusing on verses 1 to 6, and then thirdly, love, love one another, focusing on verses 7 to 21. There's an awful lot in 1 John 4. I can't cover it all. I'm just going to extract and highlight some key bits. Well, I guess our first question is point one, why are we even talking about truth and love this morning? Well, do you remember uh, from chapter 2 of 1 John that the book was written to Christians in a very unsettling Christian context. It seems that for the Christians to whom the book was written, a group of apparent believers had broken away from the church, from their fellowship, and were trying to take others with them. I wonder whether you've ever been in that sort of situation yourself. I'm not talking about where there's a, a church plant which is organised, but where people have left the fellowship and try and take others people, perhaps you, with them. I can imagine you would appreciate that that sort of thing could be very confusing and unsettling. And much of 1 John seems to be written to reassure the Christians who haven't gone with the breakaway, with the, was a false teaching breakaway, but have stayed with the main church, to reassure them that they are on the right track. Much of 1 John is about reassurance. Uh, But then there are some key things which are highlighted that are needed in this situation. And chapter 3 highlights that in this sort of situation, two things which are really important are truth and love. Last week we looked at chapter 3. There are a couple of verses in particular which highlight this. Chapter 3 verse 18 says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, now there's the love, but with actions and in truth. There's the truth. Or a few verses later, chapter three, verse 23 says, and this is the command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. There's the truth bit. And to love one another as he commanded us. There's the love bit. Now, truth and love, we need them both. Truth without love can mean we're a bit like Pats doctrinal Rottweilers. (laughs) What do I mean by that? Someone who is so concerned that you and everyone else agree with absolutely everything they think on every doctrinal issue that the slightest variation is attacked with apparent viciousness and anger. I mean, that's not very loving, is it? But then there's the opposite danger, love without truth. That can result in sentimentality, a shallow love, and actually a false love, because it's not really committed to the good of the other person. So at all times, and especially at times where there is some church division or church conflict, we want both truth and love. So point two, let's start to think about truth, focusing on verses one to six. And in this case, it's believing certain core truths about Jesus Christ. Now, in the first century, there were many religions. There was the worship of Greek gods, Roman gods, emperor worship. There were many philosophies, Stoicism, various Jewish sects, Epicureanism. And even in the early church, there were sects starting to break away from mainstream Christianity. The early church would soon be plagued by Docetism, Arianism, Pelagianism, Gnosticism, and other heresies or false teachings. So John's warning against false teaching in verse one is highly relevant. Look at it it with me, if you will. Dear friends, he writes, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. John is saying here that amidst the cacophony of competing voices and views, the Christians needed to test the spirits, test the views, test the teachings to see if any were authentic or which were authentic and which were false. Now, the test for truth that seemed to be particularly relevant in this first century context related to the incarnation of Jesus the belief that Jesus, the son of God, came to earth. He was divine, but he he became human, and he was both fully human and fully divine at the same time. Look at verses two and three. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus He's not from God. See, the the particularly relevant test here in this context seemed to be that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he had come, by which we mean he'd come from heaven, in the flesh, taken on humanity, i.e., Jesus was both divine and human, God and flesh at the same time. And it seemed that even in the second half of the first century, that there were Christians who didn't agree with that. For instance, there was one by the name of Serinthus. He held that Christ descended upon Jesus at baptism, but left him at the crucifixion. Now that's clearly contrary to the incarnation. And the incarnation is crucial for us as Christians. It highlights God's love, it shows us what God is like, and it's central to Jesus dying on the cross in our place. So, there was false teaching then. There's a lot of false teaching, of course, today about Jesus. Uh, And that can include even by people who were apparently Christians. There was a book from 1977 entitled, The Myth of God Incarnate. Uh, It was a collection, I think, of short essays by various apparently Christian scholars. And in the preface to the book, they say that it's their belief uh, that uh, conceptions of Jesus as God incarnate, i.e. Jesus as being God and human, were mythological or poetic, or to put it simply, in their view, was Jesus actually God? No. no. Now that's one of the aspects of the Christian faith which is attacked today and there are many others as well. Now when I say that we should be concerned about attacks on the Christian faith, I'm less concerned about differences of opinion about more minor matters, like, you know, the best way to baptize someone or the most appropriate way to run a church youth group ministry. But I'm thinking of things which are absolutely central, like, is there a God? Was Jesus the son of God? Did his death on the cross pay for our sins? Did he physically rise from the dead? These are the things which are really important. And sadly these are things which are currently denied far and wide by atheists and people of other religions. Now the test for truth today is not just was Jesus God incarnate, but the test of false belief today is how does it square with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news about Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, his death on the cross which can take our sins and restore us to our relationship with God. and. Uh, As I said, we often say here we can receive the benefits of Christ's death for us by asking him to forgive us and saying we want to follow him. It's this gospel which includes the incarnation of Christ, which is the touchstone for true belief today. So back in the first century, these Christians, I guess, feeling a bit under attack. There was false teaching, apparently from people who seem to have been Christians. And of course, there were all these other religions and philosophical views in the world in which they lived. Do you think they might have felt a little potentially overwhelmed? What about today? How do you think Christianity is going today in Australia? Now, some of you may know that during the week, they announced the winner to the Australian Christian Book of the Year. And it was this book. It's called Being the Bad Guys by a Western Australian gentleman by the name of Stephen McAlpine. Now, it's a really good book. I've read it, and I I certainly uh, would recommend it to you. But I guess one of the things the book is about, it talks about living as a Christian in a culture which increasingly opposes us. We're no longer seen as the good guys. We're now seen by many people as the bad guys. You wonder whether some Christians today are feeling perhaps a bit overwhelmed or under the gun. Well, the encouragement in verses four to six, the next verses which follows, is that truth wins. God wins in the end. Look at verse four. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Remember, the world here refers to the anti-God forces in the world. It's basically saying that God is greater and more powerful than the anti-God forces in the world. God triumphed over those forces on the cross and this victory will be made absolutely apparent upon Christ's return. Now one of my favorite Christian biographies is a book called God Smuggler by a guy called Brother Andrew, a Dutch Christian gentleman who in the second half of last century acted or travelled to I guess countries of the world where Christians were persecuted and sought to provide them with various forms of support really interesting book now back in the 1980s our brother Andrew came to Sydney and I went and heard him speak I think it was at the state theatre in the city and I can't remember much about the talk other than the fact that I found it quite encouraging except for I think it was near the end when he basically said brothers and sisters or Christians you know in the end we win we win now he didn't say that in some sort of triumphalist way like ha <laughs> ha we're the champions but remember this guy worked with christians who were persecuted uh, minorities in governments which oppressed them and the thing which he reminded them and he reminded us can remind us to today is that in the end god and his people win jesus has overcome the world god is more powerful the encouragement here is that we win so we want to make sure that when we're tempted to veer away from the truth, we stick with the truth in the face of these temptations and distractions. Now, I don't know about you, if you haven't yet felt the lure of alternative ways of living or competing voices or different worldviews or things like that, and you feel their lure somewhat, I suspect you will at some point. I guess the point of this passage is be forewarned and be prepared. Stick with the truth. And remember that with Christ, ultimately, we win, thanks to God, not us, of course. Well, there's that. We need to hold to the truth. But the the third point is that we should also seek to, in this context, love one another, verses 7 to 21. Now, 1 John 4, or parts of 1 John 4, are often read out at weddings. In fact, it was read out, as I recall, at my own wedding. And it's quite appropriate. It's a a great passage for weddings. But the passage was not primarily addressed to people getting married. It was written to Christians dealing with conflict and confusion. And uh, for Christians in such challenging contexts, indeed in any context, love for others is crucial. When the church is under the pump, let's stick together, to coin a phrase. Look at verse 7. Dear friends, the writer says, let us love one another. And then in verse 11, we also ought to love one another. Now love, I define as a commitment to the good of another person. Now the one another here refers to other believers. Now, of course, as Christians, we should love everyone and there are other passages which talk about that, like, you know, love your neighbour and the parable of the Good Samaritan and things like that. But here is specifically talking about to loving one another in the church. People in our local church, Christians elsewhere in the world, we are being committed to loving them. Now, why should we do this countercultural thing? Because let's face it, loving one another is a little countercultural. You see, historically, people tend to love those who are like them or who are similar to them or are on the same social level as them or who know them. But for Christians, we read elsewhere that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then we're told to do what does not come naturally, that is to love one another across all these and any other boundaries we could happen to think of. Why? Verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Or verse 19, we love because he first loved us. You see, it's God's love for us which can inspire us to love others. But not only that, God also provides us with the love with which to love others. Look at verse 7 again. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Trying to live the Christian life without being inspired by God's love for us and without being empowered by God's love, which he can place in us, is, in the end of the day, tiresome. Burdensome. In fact, I'd suggest even perhaps impossible. As many of you would know, I'm um, helping present a course on Christian ethics on Monday nights, and we're thinking in that course about what it means to love God and to love others in different life contexts which we find ourselves in. Now, the idea of loving God and loving others sounds lovely, doesn't it? Until we get to the difficult bits, like Forgive others, or love your enemies, or serve one another, or love even in those situations where it's a little inconvenient. Can I say, if we're not inspired by God's love for us, for his gospel of grace, and if we're not empowered by God, loving others can become simply a burden. Then we read that not only can God inspire us and provide us with the love, but we also read that God is love. Look at verse eight. That says it. God is love. As does verse 16. That also says God is love. Well, how is it that God is love? Well, consider this. The Bible indicates to us that God is the Trinity. One God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And from before time was invented, before creation, the Father, Son, and Spirit lived in perpetual mutual love. God is love in and of himself. Now, God didn't need to create humanity because he needed someone to love and he was lonely. He was loving in and of himself. God is love. But God, in his grace, shared his love and showed his love by creating humanity and when we all went astray he showed his love again by doing things which allowed humanity to be saved we see this for example in the incarnation look at verse 9 again or look at verse 9 for the first time sorry this is how God showed his love among us he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him And then God showed his love then via the atonement, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That describes the son of God dying in our place to offer us forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Now I'm pretty sure that for most people watching, you have heard that oodles of times before and perhaps the wonder of it has been lost somewhat for you. Greg Sheridan is the foreign affairs editor or the foreign editor for the Australian media network. I also believe he's a Christian and I've heard him interviewed a few times recently. I think particularly because he's just released a book entitled Christians the urgent case for Jesus in our world. Now this guy is a highly respected uh, journalist, I've heard him interviewed a couple of times, and in one of them, he said words along the following lines. Uh, this is a rough paraphrase, but this is roughly what he said. The crucifixion, even more than the resurrection, is the most radical and astonishing claim of Christianity. Other religious traditions have ideas of gods walking on earth and gods overcoming death in some way or other. But no other religion, to my knowledge, has an all-knowing, all-powerful, everlasting, eternal God becoming a human being and then suffering death and torture and defeat and humiliation, the purpose of which was for the sake of us, for solidarity with our suffering, but also to earn our redemption. Now, I think that's a very interesting comment is extraordinary Jesus's death on the cross it's an extraordinary unique display of incredible love on God's behalf for us. So in the light of all that's been said we must of course love one another love our brothers and sisters as we heard in verse 20 whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Verse 21 Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now can I say that this command is is very often an absolute pleasure. It's wonderful to be part of a mutually loving Christian community. And I'm pretty sure many of you watching, if not most, and hopefully all, can look with gratitude at being part of a loving Christian community. For those of you at Winmalee, here at Winmalee, or other congregations or wherever else you're watching this from, It's wonderful to be part of that sort of community. But it's not always easy, is it? Uh, One of the classic problems of youth groups is that there can be cliques. Perhaps a group of people from one school, a group of people from another school. They don't really mix. They don't really encourage each other. Horrible if that's the case. Now, adults can do exactly the same thing. We're usually a bit more sophisticated about it, though. We can have little cliques and people who we'd rather not speak to and who we actively avoid and etc etc we need to love one another and it's not easy in another way as well we're even to love our enemies we read elsewhere in scripture now i suspect many of you here watching uh, would think i don't actually have any enemies well perhaps some of you do but some of you don't but it's not saying just enemies we should love but anyone right through to our enemies we should love which includes loving those people who we find a little annoying or a lot annoying or who really rub us up the wrong way speaking very generally here so as not to give anything away i once found myself in a work situation where i um spent a lot of time with someone who i found incredibly difficult uh, to the point of infuriating uh, often And I, as a Christian, I wanted to know how to deal with it. And so I spoke to an older, wiser Christian, and he said to me that whenever I um, was annoyed by this particular person, I should pray for them, which proved to be very helpful and good advice. But, of course, it's not just loving those who we find hard, it's loving those who we love, who aren't difficult to love. And when we are loving others, there are, of course, the big sweeping acts of love that we can participate in, great acts of self-sacrifice, long-term commitment to various ministries at church and the like. But I heard of a minister who once said of church life that church life revolves around the tiny gestures. Now, that's probably a slight overstatement, but it's interesting, isn't it? Church life revolves around the tiny gestures, the small kindnesses which people can do for each other. Now, in this lockdown, uh, my family and I have been on the receiving end of a number of small kindnesses which people have shown to us. And we, I trust, have sometimes provided small kindnesses to others. It's wonderful to love one another in these ways. Let me conclude. At all times, as Christians, but particularly in times of confusion and conflict and uncertainty, When all sorts of ideas can be swirling around, all sorts of annoyances can be hitting it from left, right and centre, the passage provides us with two things to love, two things to hold on to, truth and love. So the big idea this morning is love the truth, love one another. Let me pray for us. dear Heavenly Father, we pray for us and for our church, and indeed we pray for all Christian churches around the world, that at all times, but particularly in times where there is confusion, where there's uncertainty, where there's conflict or division, that Christians would be dedicated to seeking the truth and to showing love. We pray that we would be a church of truth and love, and that we as individual believers would be believers who love truth and who love love.